0: Last week, to recap, in our previously in Exodus segment of this message, we saw the first four plagues unleashed on the land of Egypt. And by the time we reached the third plague, which was lice, the Egyptian magicians were unable to duplicate what God was doing. And while the Israelis had also experienced the first three plagues, along with the Egyptians, When God sent the fourth plague, which was flies, he began protecting his people, causing the plagues to only affect the Egyptian people, resources, and land. Through all this, Pharaoh continued to harden his heart and refused to let the Israelis go. He offered up two compromises last week in which we saw two of the compromises that Satan tries to tempt us with. Firstly... Pharaoh said in chapter eight verse 25, go sacrifice to your God in the land. In other words, serve God but, but keep living in the world. View the world as your home, not heaven. You can call yourself a Christian but, but just don't live any differently to anyone else. That's the first temptation to compromise. Then the second temptation to compromise in chapter eight verse 28, Pharaoh said, I'll let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness only you shall not go very far away. And this is when Satan says, okay, okay you want to serve God, but, but keep one foot in the kingdom of God and, and one foot in the world. You don't, you don't have to give up everything. You don't have to be too radical. Just kind of live for Jesus and, and kind of live for the same stuff that everyone else does. And as we jump into chapter 9, the hits are going to keep coming, and so will the temptation to compromise as we get into the fifth plague. Chapter 9, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and tell him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will be on your cattle in the field, on the horses, on the donkeys, on the camels, on the oxen, and on the sheep a very severe pestilence. The word pestilence there just means an extreme fever or disease. So God says, all of your agricultural machines, basically, your means of transportation, your meat and milk supply, your clothing materials are all going to become infected and die. And so think about this. This would have absolutely crashed the Egyptian economy. Ground it to an absolute standstill. Verse four, and the Lord will make a difference between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt. So nothing shall die of all that belongs to the children of Israel. Once again, God is gonna send a very clear message that he's greater than the God of Egypt and that he's on the side of the Israelis. There's gonna be no confusion about whose side he is on. As we said, the Israelis were affected by the first three plagues, and then the Lord began shielding them from the plagues. And I think that would have caused them to say, to put it lightly, man, I'm glad that the Lord is on our side. Sometimes we feel sorry for ourselves when when following the Lord costs us something or brings a challenge into our lives, and we say, oh man, it's, it's so hard to follow the Lord. You know what's really hard? Living without the Lord. That's what's really hard. I cannot even imagine what a mess I would be without the Lord. I take him for granted so easily. And so the Lord let Israel see what it was like to have and to not have. He says, this is what it's like to not have my hand of protection on you. Now, this is what it's like to have my hand of protection on you. So you guys can figure out which one is better. And they would have said, man, it is so good to have the hand of the Lord upon us. And I hope that we'll say the same thing. I hope we'll remember the goodness of God and that we won't take it for granted ever. Once again, the scriptures make it clear that these plagues are supernatural. They do not have naturalistic causes. And I'm just going to say this one more time. I know I mentioned it last week. But if you pursue that line of thinking that there's natural explanations for all of these plagues... I do need you to realize that in order to take that position, you have to take the position that the Bible is lying. That's a very, very different discussion that we can't get into today, but I just wanna make sure we're clear on the fact you can't say, oh yeah, I believe the Bible. I believe the Exodus account. You can't say that and also believe that these plagues have natural causes because that's not what the text says. It doesn't give us that option. God is gonna predict the times that he's going to do these things. He's gonna predict exactly what he's gonna do. He's gonna do it to the Egyptians only and not to the Israelites, even though they're living in the same territory. Things that are just impossible If it had a natural explanation. Verse 5 Then the Lord appointed a set time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. So the Lord did this thing on the next day, and all the livestock of Egypt died. But of the livestock of the children of Israel, not one died. Now slow down for a moment and just think about how overwhelmingly. God's power is being demonstrated here. When Moses talks to Pharaoh the day before, all the animals in Egypt are for the most part healthy. Pharaoh can look out his palace window as Moses is giving him this warning and Pharaoh can see oxen working in the field in the distance. Everything's normal. Moses shows up and Moses says, hey, within the next 24 hours, all the livestock in Egypt is gonna be dead, not sick dead. And Moses adds, hey, but, but, but all of the Israelis' livestock is going to be fine, just so that you in Egypt will understand that Yahweh's on our side. And then the next day, it happens. I mean, just imagine this. It happens. Oxen, sheep, donkeys, camels, cows, they're, they're just falling over and dying everywhere across all of Egypt until they're all dead. Till they're all dead. It would have been surreal. Bulls were a, a big part of Egyptian religious thinking. There were several cults devoted to worshiping bull gods of the Egyptians, but there were also several main Egyptian gods who had the, the horns of a bull or an ox or the body of a cow or an ox or something like that and, and you find bulls all over Egyptian archaeology and art and sculpture and so once again God is just taking aim at the Egyptian pantheon of gods and he's revealing them to be powerless imposters. It seems a bit vague to us we're like oh, that's a bit of a, a tenuous connection Jeff but to the Egyptian mind they would have very clearly understood that God is demonstrating his power over all of the Egyptian gods. They would have understood this intrinsically right away. It would have been real clear to them. Verse seven, then Pharaoh sent, so he just sent men to go check out the territory where the Israelites were living in Goshen. Pharaoh sent and indeed not even one of the livestock of the Israelites was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh became hard and he did not let the people go. So the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take for yourselves handfuls of ashes from a furnace and let Moses scatter it toward the heavens in the sight of Pharaoh and it will become fine dust in all the land of Egypt and it will cause boils that break out and sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. Then they took ashes from the furnace and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses scattered them toward heaven. So the production value is improving of Moses' demonstrations here, as you can see. He's using props now. They got, got ash that he's throwing in the air. And they caused boils that break out in sores on man and beast. So as with the lice, what this does is this makes all of the Egyptians ceremonially unclean. They'd also all be miserable for, for obvious reasons. They can't lie down. They can't sit down. They can't walk. It's all miserable. All their livestock is dead. They're all stuck at home, covered in boils. The whole country is at an absolute literal standstill, not just economically, but but nobody's really moving or walking around. The furnace that's referred to here is widely considered by scholars to be Uh, one that was used for sacrificing animals to Egyptian gods. And so the ashes would have symbolized to the Egyptians cleanliness, purification, because we've offered these sacrifices to the Egyptian gods, they've been appeased, and we're all good with the gods. And so what God seems to be doing is he's having Moses take some of these ashes, which they associate with being ceremonially clean. He's throwing them in the air, and when he does that, they all become ceremonially unclean. God is just, he's literally making fun of the Egyptian gods and their religious system. As Moses throws the ashes up, everyone comes down with boils. God's just toying with these supposed Egyptian gods, revealing them to be completely impotent. Verse 11, and the magicians could not stand literally before Moses because of the boils. For the boils were on the magicians and on all the Egyptians. The magicians are incapacitated they're unable to walk because they have these boils covering their bodies they don't even try to take on moses because they can't they can't even get to the palace they can't even get to moses i kind of wish they had been able to because it would have been really funny to watch them hobble into pharaoh's court you know completely covered in boils and say nothing to worry about pharaoh we can make boils appear on people too. Just watch watch this. Because Pharaoh probably would have killed them right there on the spot, which is probably another reason why they don't show up. It's as though they're finally beginning to realize that it's not actually that helpful to be able to recreate the plagues that are tormenting their entire country. They can't do anything. Like the magicians, all the priests in Egypt are incapacitated. They're all ceremonially unclean and they can't move. They can't offer any sacrifices. They can't offer any prayers. They can't perform any rituals. All the men and women in Egypt who are supposed to be able to interact with the supernatural realm and the gods of Egypt can't do anything. Verse 12. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he did not heed them. He didn't listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Pharaoh still doesn't listen. He's sitting there covered in boils, incredibly uncomfortable and he's saying, this is fine, this is fine, this is no biggie, this too shall pass in his stubbornness. Verse 13, then the Lord said to Moses, rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For at this time, I will send all my plagues to your very heart and on your servants and on your people that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Pharaoh, I'm going to ratchet up the intensity of these plagues. And if you don't repent, it's not just going to hit your wallet or your body, it's going to break your heart. And that's going to be an an allusion to the 10th and final plague, which we're going to look at next week. Verse 15, God's still speaking to Pharaoh. Now if I had stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you would have been cut off from the earth. You all would have just died if I wanted you dead. But indeed, for this purpose, I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. So the reason that God allowed this man to ascend to the throne in Egypt, the reason God hardened his heart, the reason God allowed this guy to be Pharaoh at this time was that he might demonstrate his power to the Egyptians, to the Israelites, and to the world. You see, God looked into the heart of this man who was Pharaoh, And he could see that he would never be a worshiper of Yahweh, no matter how much evidence, no matter how much revelation he received. And so the Lord said, I've got a perfect part for you to play in what I'm going to be doing for my people in the land of Egypt. You're going to be a pawn, a part of my story. And to be clear, you've got to understand this. God knowing what Pharaoh will do, does not affect Pharaoh's free will in any way. God, knowing in advance, having foreknowledge of Pharaoh's actions and decisions doesn't mean that Pharaoh's free will has been taken away. The example I use all the time is that if I leave some cookies on my kitchen counter, I know, I know if I just leave them there, one of my kids is gonna take one when I'm not looking. And I know that. And I actually know which kid it's gonna be. And I go out the room and I come back and there's a cookie missing. And I go to that kid and I say, hey, I know you took a cookie. That child is not going to be able to look at me and say, well, dad, you knew I was going to do it. And so by you knowing that in advance, I really didn't have free will. It's not my fault I ate the cookie you predestined it to happen. That excuse is not going to work in my house or yours because we all understand I didn't take away his free will. I just knew what he would do with it but it was entirely his choice. My foreknowledge did not remove their free will and it didn't remove their responsibility. As we've seen already, Pharaoh hardened his own heart over and over and over again, long before God ever got involved in hardening it. God only gave Pharaoh what Pharaoh wanted for himself. He didn't want to acknowledge God, and so God said, okay, okay, I'll make it so that you can't acknowledge me. And knowing all this in advance, knowing Pharaoh's heart better than Pharaoh knew his own heart, God said, you're gonna be part of my plan to reveal my glory to the world. So write this down. God's foreknowledge of Pharaoh's decisions and actions did not negate Pharaoh's free will. God's foreknowledge of Pharaoh's decisions and actions did not negate Pharaoh's free will. I'd love to get into a whole sidebar there. I'll just name the name. I'd love to get into it about Calvinism. But I share only this because the way I want you guys to think about Calvinism is just listen. You don't even need to get into an in-depth, deep study. If you just use a little common sense, you won't fall for any of the nonsense that doesn't make sense when people try and tell you things like, well, if God knows what you're going to do, then you don't have free will. That doesn't even make sense. So just stick to things that make sense and you'll do fine. You won't fall for that stuff. So God's message to Pharaoh continues in verse 17. He says, as yet you exalt yourself against my people in that you will not let them go. Behold, tomorrow about this time. So again, God now says, I'll give you roughly the hour when this is going to happen. I will cause very heavy hail to rain down, such as not been in Egypt since its founding until now. Therefore, send now and gather your livestock and all that you have in the field, for the hail shall come down on every man and every animal which is found in the field and is not brought home, and they shall die. So this is gonna be hail of a size that can kill a man, a camel, an ox with one blow, one blow. I don't know if you've ever seen even hail that's two pounds, that's a ball that's two pounds. That can go straight through your roof tile, just boom, like a bullet. You get hail that's 20 pounds, 30 pounds, 40 pounds. It's instant death. From, it's like being hit by a meteor for all intents and purposes. This is what God is talking about. It's going to be terrifying. And so God creates a choice for the Egyptians here. This is very interesting. Those Egyptians who sheltered their... Livestock, their workers, and whatever crops they could gather would be acknowledging by their actions, hey, Yahweh is more powerful than our gods are. He's more powerful than the gods of Egypt. He's able to do what he says he'll do. Those who refuse to acknowledge Yahweh, despite all the evidence of the plagues thus far, would not heed the Lord's warning, and they would not bring in anything from the field. So this is a line in the sand. It was a chance for the Egyptian population to witness a live-action poll. What's the pulse of the country right now? And the poll's question was, is the God of the Hebrews for real? I mean, they might all be saying, oh, I don't believe it, I don't believe it, and God says, well, let's see. Let's actually see. If you bring your things in from the field, you're gonna be fine. If you don't, you're gonna die. Let's see what people actually believe. So verse 20, underline this first part here. He who feared the word of the Lord, he who feared the word of the Lord, how ironic is this sentence, among the servants of Pharaoh, made his servants and his livestock flee to the houses. So there's some who hear this and they're like, get everyone in right now. But he who did not regard the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestock in the field. Massive, massive point about the Christian life that you and I can take from this. This is huge. Write this down, it's a fill in on your outline. This is massive. Those who fear the Lord, obey the Lord. Those who fear the Lord, obey the Lord. Listen, the fear of the Lord is not one of those complicated, nuanced issues of the Christian life. It's not. It's really, really simple. We all know the Bible says repeatedly that a fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you want to know whether you actually fear the Lord or not, all you have to do is look at your life and ask the question, am I obeying the Lord? Am I obeying the Lord? I'm not talking about perfection. None of us is perfect. I'm talking about being someone who does their best to live in alignment with the way God has called us to live in his word. If you know what God's word says about a specific issue, but the truth is you you just don't care, and your attitude is, yeah, I know what it says, but I'm just gonna do what I want instead. Man, don't kid yourself. You do not fear the Lord. You are lying to yourself. Because those who fear the Lord obey the Lord. You're doing the same thing as these Egyptians who heard the word of the Lord but didn't actually respond. They didn't actually change their behavior. They left everything out in the field. They left their servants and their livestock to die. God's word is not joking when it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Those who fear the Lord obey the Lord. And the more I study the the Sermon on the Mount and the more I realize how much God is concerned with the heart, the more I realize in my own life that there's often sin I need to repent of. and, And what God is concerned about is not the actual thing that I did. He's concerned about what's going in my heart that caused me to do that thing or not do that thing. He's concerned about the part in me that didn't fear him, didn't take him seriously enough, didn't think honoring him was a big enough deal to obey him. And I find myself saying more and more often, Lord, I'm sorry for that. I'm sorry for not having a heart that took you seriously in this area of life. Help me to fear you the way you deserve to be honored. God has made it clear in his word that that there's an eternity Judgment is coming, and he's made it clear that the only way to be saved is to be part of his household, to come into his house. Those who believe in him will be saved. Those who don't will be left exposed to judgment. So what does the wise man, what does the wise woman do? The same thing that the wise Egyptians did. The wise Egyptians looked around and they said, um, this isn't the first plague. There's been a whole bunch already, and they've all come true. So based on the evidence, I think we should heed the word of the Lord. If you're wise, you'll heed the warnings of Scripture and respond to the instructions that lead to safety. And if you're ready for one more ouch kind of observation, let me also point this out. How often, how often do we fail to fear the Lord? And so because we don't fear the Lord, we don't obey the Lord, and then we find ourselves walking out, taking a look around us at destruction in our lives and saying, why is this happening to me? Why are all these things coming down on me? Where's God? And a lot of the time the answer is real simple. We just don't like it. The answer is we did not take heed to the word of the Lord. We ignored his counsel. We didn't listen to what his word said about marriage, about parenting, about work, money, Holiness, church, whatever the issue is. And we're shocked when there's an actual consequence to ignoring what God says. I can't believe my marriage isn't going well. Well, What does the word say about marriage? I really don't know. I've never looked. You know, we love to tell ourselves our favorite lie is like, well, yeah, yeah, I know I'm not doing things God's way in that area of my life, but that's not it yeah, it is, it really, really is, it really is that, sim- I, don't, I, don't, I don't think, yeah, that's really what it is. When that happens, the best thing we can do is repent for our lack of fear of the Lord, bear the fruit of repentance by obeying the Lord, and then learn from the experience. Well, can you picture the scene here? So Pharaoh is watching out of his window, and he's watching his people, and they're scrambling to bring in all they can to shelter And that's profound because what Pharaoh is watching as he sees this happening across his kingdom, he's literally watching his people profess their lack of faith in the gods of Egypt and more importantly, their lack of faith in him. Because remember, Pharaoh is the one who's supposed to hold ma'at together. He's supposed to hold the natural order of things together. And these Egyptians who are scrambling to bring in their livestock, what they're saying is, we've got no confidence in Pharaoh or the gods of Egypt's ability to do anything about this, I'm getting my cattle in. Oh yeah, you're still great, Pharaoh. Come on in, cattle. Oh yeah, absolutely, you're still the son of Ra. Absolutely, let's get the cattle in. That's what's going on, and Pharaoh knows this is not a good scene. Verse 22, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man, on beast, and on every herb of the field throughout the land of Egypt. And Moses stretched out his rod toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire darted to the ground. The idea is that lightning striking the ground and doing things like lighting trees on fire. And the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt, so there was hail and fire mingled with the hail, so very heavy that there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation." And the hail struck throughout the whole land of Egypt, all that was in the field, both man and beast. And the hail struck every herb of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, there was no hail. I can't imagine how, how unreal it would be to be an Israeli in Goshen and just watching this. If you've ever seen rain when you're on the side of it and it hasn't reached you and it's just like a, a curtain, you imagine seeing that There's just lightning and hail destroying everything, and there's just this invisible barrier around you. It would have been unbelievable. And so if you're an Egyptian, as this is happening, you're wondering, why don't all our deities who who live in the sky do something about this? And the only explanation they can come up with, because they're not going to suddenly become atheists. That's not an option at this time in, in life and in the world. The only explanation they can come up with is, well, our gods are not doing anything because They can't do anything. Yahweh must be greater and stronger than them, which means we're in a heap of trouble. Verse 27, And Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous and my people and I are wicked. Entreat, that just means pray to the Lord, that there may be no more mighty thundering or literally voices of God and hail, for it is enough, it's enough. I will let you go and you shall stay no longer. This isn't genuine repentance. And the tip-off is that Pharaoh says he only sinned, quote, this time. Not all the other times he defied the Lord's instructions. Only this time. This is Pharaoh doing the bare minimum to get Moses to ask the Lord to stop this plague. Verse 29, so Moses said to him, as soon as I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail. That you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you will not yet fear the Lord God. Now the flax and the barley were struck, for the barley was in the head and the flax was in bud, but the wheat and the spelt were not struck, for they are late crops. Just means that the wheat and the spelt ripened later in the year, so it wasn't exposed enough to be destroyed yet by the hail. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and spread out his hands to the Lord. Then the thunder and the hail ceased and the rain was not poured on the earth. And when Pharaoh saw that the rain, the hail and the thunder had ceased, he blessed the Lord and became a worshiper of Yahweh. Nope. He sinned yet more and he hardened his heart, he and his servants. So Pharaoh is once again hardening his own heart and so are those who make up his government just as the world will harden their hearts against the Lord in the tribulation despite the overwhelming evidence and signs and wonders of the judgments being poured out on the earth. Verse 35, so the heart of Pharaoh was hard. Neither would he let the children of Israel go, as the Lord had spoken to Moses. You see, Pharaoh, like too many people, didn't wanna be right with the Lord and follow the Lord because he understood now that the Lord was the way, the truth, and the life. Pharaoh, like too many people, really wanted a get-out-of-jail-free card. He wanted God to come into his life and make all his problems go away. And then once God did, he had no more use for God. We'll continue into chapter 10. Now the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine before him. And, And then underline this. That you may tell in the hearing of your son and your son's son the mighty things I have done in Egypt, and my signs which I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Parents understand this. One of the reasons God does great things in your life and in my life, one of the reasons he's faithful and does miracles and gives you God's stories is so that you can share those testimonies with your children and with your grandchildren. Make sure that you do that. These are not private stories for you yourself. They're testimonies to the greatness of God that he gave to you to encourage and build the faith of your children and your grandchildren. So write this down. God's work in our lives is meant to be shared to build the faith of others. It's meant to be shared to build the faith of others. Then we read in verse three, so Moses and Aaron came into Pharaoh and said to him, thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? That is the real issue, that is the real issue. Life lesson right here it wasn't about the evidence for Yahweh's existence. Pharaoh wasn't saying, here's the thing, I'm a philosopher, I'm a thinker, I'm an academic, and uh, I'm just not seeing the evidence for God. That had nothing to do with it. There was evidence everywhere. The issue was that Pharaoh was too proud to acknowledge that God was God. Pharaoh literally believed he was God. That's no different today. There's almost nobody who doesn't believe in God because of the lack of evidence. Even though they might say that's the reason. They might even believe that's their reason. In almost every case, that is not the reason. There's something else going on. They don't want to give up the throne in their life. If God is real, there are, there are consequences for that. They have to do something with that knowledge and that realization. They're accountable. That's what's going on much more of the time. Let's keep going, let my people go that they may serve me. Or else if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory and they shall cover the face of the earth so that no one will be able to see the earth. Just think about what that's gonna look like. You can't even see the ground, they're just locusts everywhere. And they shall eat the residue of what is left, which remains to you from the hail. And they shall eat every tree which grows up for you out of the field. So all the vegetation has been destroyed by this hail. Every branch has been broken, trees knocked down. And what God is saying is these locusts are going to come on the land of Egypt and they're going to eat everything green on every even damaged plant. Every branch that's knocked over, they're going to strip it absolutely bare. There's going to be no edible vegetation left in the land of Egypt. Verse 6, they shall fill your houses, the houses of all your servants and the houses of all the Egyptians, which neither your fathers nor your father's fathers have seen since the day that they were on the earth to this day. And he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants, his counselors, his politicians, his advisors said to him, how long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet know that Egypt is destroyed? So even Pharaoh's advisors are saying, I don't know if you've looked out the window lately, but Pharaoh, Egypt is being destroyed right before our eyes. And our gods, including you, apparently can't do anything about it. We need to get these Israelites out of Egypt while there still is an Egypt. That's what they're saying. But Pharaoh hears what he wants to hear, as we often do. And what he hears is them say, Let the men go. Verse eight, so Moses and Aaron were brought again to Pharaoh and he said to them, go, serve the Lord your God. Who are the ones who are going? And Moses said, well, we will go with our young and our old, with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds we will go, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. Then he said to them, that's Pharaoh, the Lord had better be with you when I let you and your little ones go. Beware, for evil is ahead of you. Not so, go now, you who are men and serve the Lord, for that is what you desired. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. So what Pharaoh says is he says, no, 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 you, you can go, but, but only the men. You gotta leave the woman and children here. And once again, Pharaoh is trying to find a way to obey the Lord without actually obeying the Lord. He knows that if he only lets the men go, they're gonna have to come back for their wives and children. And one of the great overarching lessons we can learn from Pharaoh is that it doesn't pay to play games with God. We're not going to fool God. Just think about how ridiculous that sentence is. We're not going to fool God and find some way to technically obey him without actually obeying him. He's God. I don't know if you've had this moment with your kids where sometimes your kid tells you something and and they're trying to be tricky or clever, and I've said this to my kids before, I've said, listen, I can't even explain to you how much smarter I am than you. Like you cannot even grasp how much more intelligent I am than you. The insights I have, the way that I can tell what you're doing and thinking, even though you think you're fooling me, it's, it's unbelievable. I'm like a God compared to your intelligence level right now. And you need to understand that you're not fooling me. That's what it's like when we try and get one over on God. It's like a five-year-old trying to play mind games and deceive their parents. And if you're a parent, you've also seen your child do this. You give them an instruction, and they obey. They obey, but, but with the speed and enthusiasm of a drunk sloth. And in our house, we like to say that obedience means obeying all the way, right away, the first time. I'm not saying that's what my kids do. I'm just saying that's what we say in my house, okay? And so when we repent, we're either repenting or we're not repenting. There's no such thing as sort of repenting. It's an all or nothing deal. We either turn away from our sin or we don't. Pharaoh is looking for a kind of repentance, which in reality is no repentance at all. And all it does is prolong the suffering of him and his people. This is another compromise Satan will try to get you to make if you're determined to worship and follow Jesus. Satan will say, Hey, you know, that's fine. You want to go serve the Lord, you want to live for Jesus, that's great. But just leave your spouse and your kids out of it, you know? Leave the kids out of it. Don't drag them to church. They need their sleep. They need to be at that tournament or that that band concert. And, being a teen, high school, middle school, it's awkward and challenging enough without being from that Christian family. So just let them fit in and do what all the other kids do. Egypt, the world, has so much to offer and so many believing families where mom and dad have good intentions are blind to the fact that they're raising their children to believe that following Jesus and being part of his church are things that you do when there's nothing better to do, when you don't get a better offer. Listen, son, we we wouldn't be missing church unless it was for something really important. And this is, I cannot explain to you how important it is that you learn how to be able to push this little piece of rubber across a sheet of ice with a wooden stick because it's going to help you so much later in life and in eternity. Or trust, trust me, trust me, listen kid, being able to kick a ball up a field this way and then that way it's an essential life skill and we gotta get you to this thing so that you can learn to kick it faster down the field and run after it faster and then learn to come back and kick it faster the other way or I know you can't see it now but listen, when you're an adult, you're gonna be constantly finding yourself in situations where there's 50 other people with musical instruments and you're playing a song together. This scenario is gonna happen a lot and so you, you gotta be prepared for this. You gotta have this life skill or I know you got the seventh most important part in that play but you never know when a Broadway scout is looking at a local school theatrical production and if they are they're going to be looking for kids who are committed they're going to be looking for a tree that never missed a single practice that's what they're going to be looking for and I need you to know I love sports I love sports I really do And I love my kids, and I love the extracurricular activities they do. I love going and watching them do their their ninja thing or their CrossFit. That's what my kids do. And if if you really love your kids, though, what I'm saying is raise them with an understanding that Jesus is more important than anything. He is more important than anything. That is the most valuable lesson you can teach your kids. Please understand this. The most valuable lesson you can teach your kids in life is not teamwork. It's not teamwork. It's a good lesson, but it's not the most important. The most important is loving Jesus. And all the things that our kids do and are involved in, they're fun. They're good. I'm not saying don't do extracurricular activities. And I know this is gonna be shocking for some. They're of almost no eternal significance. Almost none. I'm giving you that little bit by saying that. I could say they're of none, but I'm saying they're almost none. So enjoy them for what they are. They're fun. They're enjoyable. They're a good time together. If you can go to them with your family, cheer on kids, relatives, that's a blast. Man, have a blast. But don't get confused just because the world is telling you, listen, this is really, really important. There's nothing more important than this. Don't be confused between the voice of the Lord and the voice of the world. Let me go one step further too. If you're thinking, well, this is why, Jeff, I prioritize academics in my house over extracurricular activities. Listen, it doesn't matter if your kid gets straight A's if they're not doing well spiritually. It doesn't matter. Do you know that in heaven, you will never see a bumper sticker that says, my child is on the honor roll at James Park Elementary. (laughs) You will never see that bumper sticker ever, ever in heaven remember what jesus said he said for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul i just want you to think about this i'm not trying to come down on everybody's favorite things that's not what i'm trying to do i'm trying to get us as a pastor to think ahead to eternity to moments that are going to happen with absolute certainty And make sure that we're living wisely in light of what we know is going to happen. And with that in mind, I want to ask you, when we're in heaven and eternal rewards are being handed out and your children are with you, are they going to be receiving eternal rewards and looking at you saying, hey mom, hey dad, thank you so much for helping me live for things that actually mattered. Thank you for teaching me how to do that. Or are they going to look at you and say, Mom, Dad, I, I don't understand. You, you always told me that all this stuff was so important. You always told me that this is what mattered the most in life, but, but now we're here in eternity, and there's, there's no rewards for sports. There's no rewards for extracurricular activities. There's, there's no rewards for any of this stuff. It, it, it's all meaningless here now. And you let me waste so much life and time and energy on things that that didn't matter. That didn't matter. That moment is going to happen. We're going to be before the Lord one day. And I'm not saying you can control what your kids do long-term in life. I understand everyone makes their own decisions. But we're all modeling something for our children. And when the choice comes down to following the Lord, or loving his church, or loving something else. What choice are you making? Because your kids are watching. They're noticing. Are we going to church? Well, of course not. There's a game on Sunday that day. Too bad. It'd be nice to go to church. They look at that and they're thinking, man, it's automatic. When church comes up against the world, the world wins automatically. Not even a discussion. And kids notice this. They notice this. And yeah, I know they really want to go do that game. I know you don't want to be the bad guy, but you're the parent. You're the one who knows what is best, and you're helping them. You're helping them understand that. Satan will also try and get you to leave your spouse in Egypt if they're not a believer or if they're struggling spiritually. Satan will say, you know, just let them be. They're their own person. Everybody's faith is a private, personal thing. Don't don't let your faith affect your family. But God's will and God's call is that we would say, no, listen, I'm standing on the promises of God. I'm gonna pray, I'm gonna persevere on their behalf. I believe that God's word is true, that me and my household will be saved. We're all leaving Egypt together, all of us. No one's getting left behind. Write this down. Satan tries to limit the efficacy of our faith by stopping us from passing it on to our family. He tries to limit the efficacy, the effectiveness of our faith by stopping us from passing it on to our family. dads, There's a reason why often you never feel more incompetent than when you're trying to be a spiritual leader in your family. I know, I'm I'm a dad too. I know you feel woefully inadequate. You feel like, oh my gosh, they're seeing straight through me. They live with me. How could they not see straight through me? They're like, Dad, I heard what happened when you stubbed your toe an hour ago and, and now you're gonna lead a Bible study? Really? Are you spiritually prepared for that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I am. You're not helping right now? The, the reason you struggle with inadequacy is because that's Satan. That's Satan saying, you got no business doing this. You got no business doing this. Come on. Don't Listen. It's Satan saying, Hey, the men can go worship. Just leave the women and children in Egypt. Don't listen. Don't listen. You're not called because you're qualified. You're qualified because you're called. Always remember that. Here's God's response to Pharaoh's faux repentance. Verse 12, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every herb of the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his rod over the land of Egypt and the Lord brought an east wind on the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts and the locusts went up over all the land of Egypt and rested on all the territory of Egypt. They were very severe. Previously there had been no such locusts as they, nor shall there be such after them. For they covered the face of the whole earth so that the land was darkened. The idea is that these locusts were so numerous that they were blocking out the sun, making the middle of the day look like evening because there's so many of them flying around. And they ate every herb of the land and all the fruit of the trees which the hail had left. So there remained nothing green on the trees or on the plants of the field throughout all the land of Egypt. So do you know what they ate? Locusts, yummy. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in haste. He's not so worried about looking cool anymore. And he said, I've sinned against the Lord your God and against you. (laughs) Now therefore, please forgive my sin only this once and entreat the Lord your God that he may take away from me this death only, this plague only. So he went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord. This guy's such a phony, but I have so much respect for Moses' response to Pharaoh. It's wisdom because Moses has every reason to roll his eyes at Pharaoh's repentance at this point, right? He has every reason to be like, pull stuff. But, but he takes the attitude of, you know what? Judging Pharaoh's not my job. God didn't give me that job. It's the Lord's job. I'm only here to do what the Lord has told me to do. He's told me to pass on messages to Pharaoh and to do certain things to instigate these plagues. I don't know what's going on in Pharaoh's heart. Only the Lord does. So I'm gonna take his repentance at face value. And then let's wait and see what the Lord reveals and what the Lord does. And, and that's wisdom. There's times when we're called to judge and there's times when we're not. Somebody says, man, I've repented. And I say, really? Are you gonna go change your life? And they say, yeah. I, I don't know, right? I mean, I can't be like, mm, I just don't see it. I just don't see it. I can't, I find it hard to believe. You've said that before and it didn't work out. There's times we're called to judge and there's times we're not. There's times where we just to say, oh, praise the Lord for that. I'll stand with you for that. I'll believe for that. And understand that, hey, if they're not for real, God's going to reveal that. It's not our job to figure everything out. And Moses is such a good example of knowing what God has called him to do and what God has not called him to do. So write this down. Moses displayed remarkable humility and self-control in not going beyond what the Lord had called him to say and do remarkable humility and self-control every reason to doubt Pharaoh but he just says that's not my job in this situation right now verse 19 and the Lord turned a very strong east wind which took the locusts away and blew them into the Red Sea there remained not one locust in all the territory of Egypt but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the children of Israel go Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which may even be felt. Underline the word felt. So Pharaoh, if you'll notice, he gets no warning this time. The next plague just comes back to back. And the implication of this is this was a spiritual darkness, a spiritual emptiness that you could feel in addition to the absence of physical light. But think with me now. Think with me now. The highest God... In the Egyptian pantheon was Ra, Amun-Ra, who is the god of the the sun. He's the god of the sun. And every day as the sun would rise, Egyptians believed that Ra was being resurrected from the dead. So think about this. God God is clearly escalating his attacks, starting with some of the more minor gods, like Heket, the frog god, and he's escalating until he gets to the big dog. He gets all the way up to Ra. Because when dawn doesn't come for three days in a row, all of the Egyptians are saying, where's Ra? Why doesn't he do something? And they understand that at best, he can't contend with Yahweh. At worst, Yahweh's killed him. And they realize that when Yahweh wants to, he can just stop Ra from rising and shining upon his worshipers. The greatest Egyptian God is completely powerless before the God of the Hebrews. And again, at this point, the Egyptian people are just desperate. They just want to get the Israelites out of Egypt so that Maat can be restored before all of Egypt is destroyed. And Moses being raised in Egypt for the first 40 years of his life, he understands all of this. He knows exactly what they're thinking. He's picking up what God is putting down completely. Verse 22, we're almost done. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. Now the obvious parallel when you see three days in the Bible is the three days Jesus spent in the grave before his resurrection. But I'm going to suggest to you that I think this darkness in Exodus more likely parallels the three hours of darkness that came upon the earth while Jesus hung upon the cross before he died. And the reason I think that is because this is the ninth plague. The tenth plague, which we'll look at next week, is going to very, very specifically point to the death of Jesus. So in this, I see much more a parallel of what happened just before Jesus died, the darkness, the three hours of darkness there. Verse 23, they did not see one another. There's a complete absence of light, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. Everyone just stays dead still because they cannot see anything. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. Again, there's no naturalistic explanation for that. And scholars posit that just as the darkness was supernatural, so too was the light. This is Likely not the sun, but it's the Shekinah glory of God, the Shabbat shining upon his people. And the parallel is very clear. If you want to be where the light is, if you want to be where there's revelation and comfort and hope and the presence of the Lord, then you need to be where the people of God are or else you're in the darkness. And the point wasn't that the Israelites were perfect or better or smarter. The point was that they worshiped God and God was with them. And so that's where the light was. The point is not that Christians are better or smarter or perfect. I wish we were. The point is that Jesus is the light of the world. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only source of real light there is. And the only way to get light is to come to him. So would you write this down? Light and life are found where the people of God are gathered. Light and life are found where the people of God are gathered. May we remember that no matter what the world is saying, remember this, no matter how loud the voices seem to be, no matter how much consensus there seems to be in our society, no matter how many people are saying it, they're in darkness. And they're having discussions in darkness. And they're formulating theories and ideas in darkness. A.W. Tozer pointed out that the dumbest new believer has more insight into the true nature of life than the smartest non-believer because that new believer is on the inside of true reality looking out at the world, seeing things as they really are while the non-believer is still on the outside of true reality trying to look in but unable to see, unable to perceive. The word of God and his spirit, they offer us illumination. The world is in darkness. So don't be concerned when the world has an opinion about what marriage should be like, about what sexuality should be like, about how the family should work, about what education should look like. Don't take your cues from the world. They're in darkness. Keep in mind the change that would be happening in the hearts of the Israelis throughout all of this. They're just watching and witnessing the incredible power of their God and go all the way back. Remember, before the plague started, Moses was telling God, God, They're not gonna listen to me. They're not gonna listen to me. They're not gonna follow me. And God said, hey, give me a minute. And he started to do all this. Think about the change that must be happening in the hearts of the Israelites as they watch. Verse 24, then Pharaoh called to Moses and said, go serve the Lord, only underline this, let your flocks and your herds be kept back. Let your little ones also go with you. So Satan's final strategy his final attempt to get Moses and the believer and you and I to compromise is he says, oh, okay, okay, I get it. You're gonna serve the Lord. You're gonna worship the Lord. You're gonna make sure your family does the same thing. But, but listen, listen. You can still leave all your resources in the world. You can still be motivated by money the same way the world is. You can still be materialistic just like the world is. You don't have to follow God with your resources, just... Use them as the world uses their resources. Leave it in the hands of the world. This is why believers don't tithe. We heed the voice of Pharaoh in Egypt, the voice of Satan in the world that says, let your flocks and your herds be kept back. Hey, don't don't serve the Lord with your resources. Don't serve the Lord with your money. You, You go and worship the Lord, but that's something different. That's real stuff. Write this down. If we're committed to follow Jesus with our family, Satan will try to limit our efficacy by tempting us to withhold our resources from the Lord. He'll tempt us to withhold our resources from the Lord. Now get this, verse 25, But Moses said, You must also give us sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also shall go with us. Underline this, Not a hoof shall be left behind. For we must take some of them to serve the Lord our God. And even we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. I love this. Moses says everything we own, all of our resources, it's gotta come with us to go serve the Lord and worship the Lord. Because we don't know what the Lord is gonna ask us to do. We don't know what the Lord is gonna ask us to trust him with until we get there. And I love that parallel to the Christian life. It's the attitude that says, Lord, Everything I have is available to you to use however you desire. That's the actual attitude. Not 10% of my income, Lord. All of it. All of it. So that we can say, why do I pay my mortgage? Because I, I believe the Lord wants me to give my family a safe place to live. All of it belongs to the Lord. Father, you do with it what you want. Help me to manage my money, my resources the way you want me to. I love that attitude. Verse 27, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take heed to yourself and see my face no more. For in the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses' response is so gangster. So Moses said, you've spoken well. I will never see your face again. Such an epic comeback for Moses. I don't know if you've seen the meme where they're called swagger glasses where the guy says something at freeze frames and the swagger glasses drop and Snoop Dogg starts playing in the background. That's just what I have in my head when Moses drops this great comeback. Someone needs to make that into a meme. Pharaoh says, I will not let your people go and don't ever let me see your face again, Moses, because if you do, I'll kill you. And Moses says, yeah, you're right, Pharaoh. You're never gonna see my face again. If you don't understand why that's such a gangster response. You just have to wait and see where the story goes, what happens to Pharaoh very, very shortly. So I'll say this to wrap up. I know we went longer today, but we got through two chapters with no genealogies. That's incredible. What an accomplishment. God is on the move. Let me encourage you. The big takeaway from this, from the model and example of Moses, is to be radical. Radical about following Jesus. Be all in. Don't compromise as soon as you say i'm gonna follow jesus satan begins to say okay how can i limit the damage can i get you to stay in the world and not actually change anything about your life can i get you to have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of god can i get you to leave your family out of it can i get you to leave your resources and your money out of it be radical for the lord Have the attitude of Moses that says, listen, we are on a journey in this life to serve the Lord and everything that we have is available to him because I don't know what the Lord is gonna ask me to do for him tomorrow, but I'm ready to do it. And everything I have is available to the Lord to do with whatever he sees fit. Be radical for the Lord. And if you're not doing that, repent. Not a a faux repentance not a fake repentance, but a genuine repentance that is marked by action, and actual change. Make whatever changes you need to make. And then be encouraged. Be encouraged. The Lord is with you. He's gonna keep working on you. He's gonna keep working on your spouse. He's gonna keep working on your children, on your grandchildren. Believe that. Stand in that. God is the one telling Moses, hey, don't, don't compromise. I'm not interested in partial deliverance. I want to deliver you completely. I want you to be completely free. And I'm not going to stop working until you're completely free. That is God's word for your life. That is God's word for your marriage. That is God's word for your children. That is God's word for your grandchildren. Stand on to that. Hold on to that. Believe what Paul said. Believe in the Lord Jesus. You will be saved, you and your household. And dads, moms, no matter how inadequate you may feel, lead your family in the ways of the Lord. Not because you're perfect, but because God has called you anyway. He called you anyway. And so believe that he's empowered you. He's given you everything you need for the task. Thank you, Lord, for your love. Thank you for your goodness. Help us to honor you with everything that we have, Jesus. We love you. In your precious name we pray.